0: And welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? What is this whole sustainability shtick anyway? Very excited to talk about our guest today, who has also been interested in this topic for a long time, as most of our guests are, but also given talk on software sustainability, which is how I found him. Before we introduce our guest, whose name I don't want to give away for some reason, I feel like maybe I like holding tension with the audience. So thank you, audience, for listening along. I want to make sure you know who we are. So I'm Richard Littauer. This is The Sustain Podcast. You probably know my voice by now. And then we also have today Ben Nichols. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you very much. Woohoo! Glad to hear you are good. So us two will be talking to Colin Everhart. Colin, it is great to have you on. You're calling today from Newcastle. You work for Scott Logic. I want to know a bit more about that, what that is. Before we get into that, I want to say that I found you initially from this wonderful talk you gave at a conference. I believe it was in London. It's on YouTube. we will have the link in the show notes about open source software sustainability and how it's totally screwed. And so I just wanted to say, like, if you want a good summary of the ecosystem, people, go listen to this talk. It's like 30 minutes. It's wonderful. It talks about all the problems we have. So I brought you on to talk a bit more about how you change and what your thoughts are. But I've been talking too much. Tell me about Scott Logic. Tell me how you first sure. got interested in software sustainability.
1: Yeah. So, um, Scott Logic, it's a UK based software consultancy. We're around about 450 people now. I've been with the business for 15 years and I'm the CTO. And the work we do is primarily within financial services, large enterprises. So, I tend to work for banks, for insurance companies, creating what they probably call you know, mission critical systems. So working on the hard stuff. So that's got logic. A bit more about myself. I've been tinkering with software, I guess, for at least 30 years now, which probably makes me sound really old. I'm not that old. I started young. I've always been interested in how computers work, picked up programming, didn't ever study it formally, but programming and then open source has been part of my life for about 20 years now.
0: That sounds about right. So you got in the open source twenty years ago. That would be two thousand and two, which is four years after open source really started with the whole nineteen ninety seven thing. I also have been tinkering with computers for thirty years now. But that's probably because I like to play with my dad's laptop as if it was a toy. So you're CTO of Scott Logic, which is great. You gave a talk on software sustainability, and you basically work a lot with the financial sector which is interesting, right? So the financial sector is banks, so forth, and how they influence open source is really different than, say, your average open source maintainer. I'm curious, since you've been dealing with open source for a long time, you've been there before GitHub became the dominant player. I wonder how your view of open source has changed and whether working with the financial sector has influenced what you see as the open source community.
1: Yeah, my view on open source has changed significantly in the past Few years, So I think for a long time, I've kind of kept my work involvement in open source separate from my personal involvement in open source. So, just like so many of us, my personal involvement in open source has been scratching that itch. And like so many engineers, i'm I must be quite itchy with the amount of code that I churn out. However, you mentioned I, I work with financial services. Now, I'm not going to single out financial services. I'm just going to basically say large enterprises. They're all very much the same. And Anyone who's worked with a very large enterprise knows that they consume a lot of open source, but they do very little in terms of contributing back to open source. Actually, to be honest, take a step back a few years, and they were quite reluctant to consume as well. So, financial services institutions have been a little bit behind the curve. I'm also involved with a group called FinOS, FinTech Open Source Foundation, which has now moved into Linux Foundation. So I'm relatively involved in the more sort of structural side of open source, the more corporate side of open source through that. So I guess, as I said, the two worlds didn't seem to have that much in common. My tinkering on the evening and the stuff that I did in the day job, even though there was open source in each, I kind of kept them separate. But as Scott Logic has become bigger, I see that we have a certain responsibility. When we were small, just like many small companies, your main responsibility is keeping going, making sure that next year you're still there so you can pay your staff. Whereas Scott Logic's doing really quite well. We're a growing and stable company. And that made me start thinking, you know, we have a growing responsibility ourselves. So, what can we do to help? Sustainability within open source. And that's something that's been bouncing around in my mind for the past few years now. And we're starting to take some concrete steps. So that's the journey that I've been on.
0: I think that's not an unusual journey. I've heard a similar journey from a lot of people. It's really fascinating to hear how that's landed on various others. And one of the things that comes up for me when I'm listening to you talk about corporate responsibility or the responsibility of, say, Scott Logic or you. A lot of this seems to come from this internal place of like, I feel like I could do more to help out. We've gathered so much. How can we give back? What's interesting to me is that always seems to be kind of a voluntary shift. And it depends upon enlightened individuals in the corporate environment to go out and then push for that to say, oh, we should donate money in some way. And I'm wondering, do you see it as being an individual choice by socially responsible members of the corporate environment? Like that's how we need to give back? Or are there structural reasons to give back? which are helpful for large corporations or enterprises in open source, where there's a beneficial reason that may help out open source.
1: When you have a responsibility to something, it's just like the responsibility that we have for our natural environment. I think the key things are education, make people understand. Firstly, understand that their impacts are indirectly having a detrimental effect. Very few businesses are having a direct detrimental effect on open source. Probably more are having a direct detrimental effect on the environment. But firstly, understanding the effect you're having. Once you have that understanding and you understand how it works, it's not too much of a leap to get to the point where you realise that investing in open source actually Reaps direct benefits to yourselves. I mean, so much of it is about education on so many levels. There's the level whereby contributing to an open source project makes that project better for you as a consumer, but also the indirect benefits of having engineers who are fluent in open source. And I did a talk about four years ago called Why I Love Open Source, and it was a very selfish talk. It was about These are the things that make me better as a person through working on open source. So it makes me a better communicator. Often you're communicating with people you've never met, they might not speak the same language. Understanding how to communicate is a fantastic skill. The obvious thing is, it makes me a better engineer. There's nothing that encourages you more to write really good code if you're putting it on GitHub and everyone can see it. And there are so many other reasons. Well, so many other. I think I listed seven. But there are lots of reasons why I personally benefit from open source. So to me, it, education has to be a huge part of it. Open source is complicated. It's fragile. It's interesting. But once you understand it, there's no doubting the phenomenal benefit that it has. I think that's the journey that large enterprises need to
0: go on. I like that. I'm looking at a blog post that came out around a similar time. I assume it's called Why I Love Open Source, Why Open Source. That's and you've one, listed... Yeah. It keeps my skills fresh. It teaches me about people, makes me a better communicator, makes me a better developer, makes my creations better. It teaches me the value of small things. And it makes me better at marketing, which is yeah. wonderful. I wish open source projects were better at marketing. Can you go into that a bit? How does open source make you better that way?
1: Well, the thing is, if you've created an open source project, well, funnily enough, again, any general observation that you make on open source is never going to be universally correct. People create open source projects for different reasons. Funnily enough, I've come across open source projects where you try to contribute and they're like, no, don't want to have any contributors. And I'm not even sure I want people using this thing. It's like, oh, okay. But generally speaking, most people create open source projects because they want others to use them. Learning how to market your creation. And I don't mean adverts. uh, Marketing it in terms of most people have a short attention span, because there are lots of things going on in our day. So if I'm looking for a tool to do a job, I will probably find 20 or 30 open source projects that might fit the bill. And for each one of them, if I can better understand within 30 seconds, a minute, roughly speaking, what are the USPs, the unique selling points of this open source project? What makes this one a good choice, whereas the other 19 may not be ideal for my application? That's what I mean by marketing. Just being Succinct. Just understanding that most people, when they evaluate a project, invest very, very little time. You can't expect them to do a code review, for example. So that's what I mean by marketing. And yeah, okay, you can have a flashy logo too. That helps.
0: I like the USP's comment. I hadn't heard that acronym before. Incredibly useful. I think every maintainer should go through and be like, what's the unique selling points? Also interesting to think about where you're positioning yourself. I know Dwayne O'Brien and indeed has a big thing around every time there's a project that someone internally at a company wants to go and put somewhere. This first question is not like cool, what license, but like why? Why are you bothering to put this out there at all? How is it going to be used?
1: Yeah, Um, I helped a project recently called Morphia, where they had the usual. They had a website and then they had a README file. They had a bunch of examples, but there was very little interconnectivity. You'd land on one page and you would be completely unaware of the others. You have to design the user journey. If they land on something technical, you need to signpost them out from something technical to the required landing page that really describes the why, why this thing exists. So just like people who do a good job of designing a website, just understanding what information to place in which locations and the journeys that people will take. And that's what marketing is in that respect.
0: Feels like we should have doing on the Open Source Sustain design podcast as well.
1: Yeah. From personal experience, my most successful open source projects have been the ones where I've probably invested far more time in the non-code elements than, than the ones where I've mostly spent my time coding. I think a healthy mix is 50-50, and that's probably not what many people want, which is absolutely fine. But I think to create something successful you have to spend quite a lot of time
2: explaining yourself. I want to move the conversation in a slightly different direction, if I can, because you have a lot of experience working in kind of highly regulated and somewhat restrictive marketplaces. And I was just incredibly interested in talking to you about your talk and the lens that you have as talking about open source sustainability through corporate social responsibility. And for me, those two words, right, social and responsibility are just like make my brain explode. And there's a mass of conversations that I want to have about those two things. But I was wondering as an industry that has kind of understandably kind of turned up late in open source because of its work in a highly regulated and restricted market, how you see the conversation happening in those kinds of organizations when it comes to how they can sustain support and otherwise kind of work to forward. It's kind of the open source work that they're either producing themselves or that they're consuming themselves. Because I expected a conversation about security and about the sustainability of like supply chain and so on, but yep. for you to put that lens of like social responsibility over it, it just kind of makes me feel like there's another conversation that's happening there that we might be missing out on.
1: I wouldn't say the conversation is happening yet. It's a conversation that I'm personally encouraging. And I've been trying to work out the solution to this problem for the past few years now. Once I realized, hang on, we should be part of the solution, not part of the problem. I thought, right, what's the solution? And funnily enough, the first solution I came up with was blockchain, NFT, and AI. Maybe not all those things, but you get the picture. It was like, yeah, blockchain, that'll do it. Crowdfunding, that will do it. And it was, I know you'll have had referenced this book a great many times Nadia Gable's book about working in public. And one of the things that really resonated with me was a great many people are not necessarily looking for money and they're most. Prized asset, the most protected asset is their attention. And what she means by that is, as an open source creator, there will be parts of your job that you love. That's what got you into open source. And there'll be parts that are a bit of a chore. And the more that we sort of create work for them on the side that's a chore, the more they get frustrated, the harder it becomes for them. So, one of the most precious things, m- most useful things we can do is firstly understand that dynamic secondly, look to support them in such a way that they can maximise their attention so that they can do the things that they want to do. So again, I've, I've gone through iterations of looking to create funding bodies. We were on the cusp of doing that when I thought, hang on, this just doesn't feel right. Open source funding's been done before. It does work, but it has its limits. I wanted to explore something a little bit different so let's jump to the solution that i'm playing with at the moment it's in its genesis so i'd be fascinated to hear your opinions on it so scott logic is a consultancy we have about 400 people and at any one point in time around about 80% of them will be working on a client project the other 20% will be doing all kinds of useful things like helping in sales helping with their own personal development and sometimes they'll be working on projects my thinking is if we can carve out some of that time to contributing to open source, then we can do some genuine good. So, the model I'm, I'm looking at is I'll call it the roll up your sleeves and help model rather than the financial contribution model. My hope is that if we can make this work, we can encourage others to roll up their sleeves. Because talking about banks and large enterprises, it's easier to get them to separate, to part with their cash than it is to get them to part with some of their engineering time. And I do want to demonstrate that my hope is that we can demonstrate that you can do some real good by rolling up your sleeves and getting involved.
0: I like that a lot. That reminds me of Megan Saneke talking about gifts, treasure, but like you can give other things in money. You yes. can give clout. You can say, hey, you come talk in my conference, or I can come talk at your conference, or I can drop your name here. You can give credits for things. Here's free AWS servers, credit, et cetera, et cetera. You can give swag. There's all sorts of ways to get involved. Giving code is another way in open source. Hey, you need help. We can help with that.
1: A big motivator for me was we ran a survey with FinTech Open Source Foundation about a year ago. And one of the results I found particularly fascinating is we asked them about the inhibitors. What are some of the things that are challenging for you with respect to consuming and using open source? And the highest points were IP related concerns and security concerns. So, security was very high. So, basically, they fear using open source tools and components because there might be security flaws within them. The Linux Foundation FOSS contributor survey was targeted at maintainers and contributors. And one of the questions, to paraphrase, asked them, What are the things that you, I'm not sure they use the word, Dislike doing, but what are some of the things that you're concerned about, but you are not actively pursuing? Security was top of the list. So you've got banks aren't consuming because they have security concerns, and you've got maintainers and contributors who explicitly state they're not keen on taking on the security responsibility and the challenge. And there's a massive gap in the middle. And to my mind. It's unlikely that money is going to solve that particular challenge. I think people rolling up their sleeves. In this instance, I do point at the banks and say, I say banks, I should probably say large enterprise in case any of our customers are listening. But I do point at large enterprises and say, you're going to have to roll up your sleeves here and get engaged to bridge that divide.
0: I do like the roll-up-your-sleeves model. It does seem to be predicated, though, on having enlightened people, which you mentioned education earlier and how important it is to have education about sustainability. Do you feel maybe there's another way? Have you thought about taxation or standards or ways where we actually require people to contribute back to open source as opposed to depending upon individuals having the time and ability to say, hey, let's dedicate our resources towards this other thing that may not immediately help us with our bottom line?
1: So you mean have some sort of government-enforced contribution?
0: They already pay for our bridges, so why shouldn't, you know...
1: Will it happen? I'm somewhat sceptical. Part of me would hope that that is our direction of travel. I think a lot of the industry is waking up to the value of open source. I mean, uh, to put a number on it, Open UK did some research and they, I think... I'll get this try to get this number right but they think the value to the European economy of open source is around about 40 billion which is a number that makes the mind boggle. Reports like that are helping people understand how important open source is and the various governments are waking up to it as well. There was a report I read from the I think it was the EU Commission. It was a 300-page report on open source and I must admit, I haven't read all of it. I skipped through some of the interesting data, but it's a fantastic report. It looks at the economics of open source. It looks at the contributions coming from different European countries, but it also looks at the legislation, what the public and private sort of rules are on open source. I do think that will change. Whether we will get a taxation or not, I don't know. Again, I keep coming back to there being such a strong sort of commonality between the natural environment and the digital environment, the natural com- commons and the digital commons. We have, mostly speaking, we've woken up to our responsibility to the natural environment. So all countries or most countries are on a journey to net zero. Over time, I think we will wake up to the responsibility we have to our digital commons. How that will manifest, I don't know, but I am hopeful that we're on the start of that journey.
0: My country is not on the road to net zero. Certain states are. And by my country, I mean the one in which I grew up and which I have an accent and the passport for. It's really tough to me. I wish that collectively we're doing that. When we think about the commons, you mentioned digital commons. I love that. I also think of cultural commons, right? How much do we spend energy on, say, protecting square dances or like various songs? Like these are all important things for me because they're part of how I envision myself as a human. And the same way that open source is important. And so I just hope that we're able to do that effectively and to share in a way and... With our commons, that sort of pushes back against, say, ultra right movements that don't seem to focus on those things in the way that I would like to. So that's a bit of a downer. I don't really have a question there. So maybe let's move on to something else. Ben?
2: Moving swiftly away from that conversational topic. So the thing that I quite like around the kind of roll up your sleeves policy that you're kind of bringing into the movement is the tendency and the capacity to bring other skills into open source. And yes, I know I go on about it a lot, but are you thinking at Scott Logic and more broadly about how to involve some of those people who aren't necessarily working in like classic open source developer roles to get involved as well? And how are you thinking about projects abilities to bring on those people and how you might kind of get people interested in contributing to open source who fall outside of that kind of like classic open source kind of contributor shape?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And Honestly, I don't have all the answers just yet. This is something we're just starting up, but what I will do is sort of very much agree. To me, sustainable open source, healthy open source involves a great breadth of skills. One thing I keep coming back to is I consider the word contribution to be incredibly broad. And I know a lot of people think it's committing code. Forking a repository, committing code, getting accepted upstream. That is a contribution. But I see open source contribution involving things like answering questions on Stack Overflow or Reddit or promoting someone's project through Twitter. And the more that you broaden your definition of contribution, the easier it becomes to consider how a breadth of skills can be applied to open source. Because if you just consider it to be writing code, then generally speaking, that is going to be the pursuit of a developer. So how we do that within Scott Logic, good question. Haven't worked it out yet.
2: Is it important? You betcha. Definitely. Yeah. I think we, you know, we've already had a conversation about the set of kind of skills that exist in open source and the set of incentives that exist that have basically brought us to this point where we have open source as a commons of significant value and yeah, I think that's the the next thing. It's just kind of how to make open source more open to people who have those other skills. And to do that in a way that genuinely like includes them and values them and kind of brings them into that conversation. I would love places and spaces like GitHub to be the home for contributors as opposed to the home for developers. And I would I'd love more people to kind of have that conversation about contributing to open source as a way of, yeah building your CV in spaces other than being a software developer. So quickly we continue the, those
1: conversations. Definitely. And bringing the conversation back to something we covered earlier, open source makes you better at marketing, or my hope is it would make you better at marketing. Marketing isn't a core developer or engineering discipline that quite naturally involves talking with people who have quite different crafts and experience to yourselves. At the beginning, we joked that we both have a podcast editor called Paul. The Paul that I work with has a degree in English and he's fantastic. I generally think I'm relatively good at written English, but when he takes something that I've written and casts his eye over it, it becomes so much better. And That's a fantastic skill that can be employed to open source.
0: Our Paul is also fantastic and makes everything better. Thank you, Paul continually, all the time, forever. One of the things that's interesting for me when we talk about sustainability and talk about metrics, and so it's easy to say that sustainable code means people have to code better. And like code is the only metric that we're looking at. And like Where committing contributions means committing code. And I think all of us agree that that's not the only thing in open source, right? We're trying to have a more diverse wealth of skills. In your talk you gave a couple of years ago about open source sustainability, you mentioned that it's really hard for a lot of projects to have enough funding to hire a full-time equivalent position. I thought that was an interesting view of open source. FTE is the way that we have more sustainable open source. I wonder yeah. if there's another way of doing it, whereas how you feel about the open source project would be a good metric. I wonder if you thought about other possible views of looking at what sustainability might be like as opposed to just an FTE.
1: Yeah, and that's because I guess at the time I was doing that, I genuinely thought that just getting enough money was the solution. And yes, open source funding is a fantastic thing, but it it isn't the solution for many maintainers. How we measure that? That's a very good question. Again, I'll come back to the probably the best data set I've seen for that is the Linux Foundation FOSS Contributor Survey. I don't know if you've come across that one, but it was targeted directly at maintainers and contributors. And the questions they asked were quite personal about how you feel about various different things. And the results were really quite interesting.
0: So Bhutan has a metric that they used, like happiness as a country. They measure how happy their people are. And we've also seen metrics coming out of like Europe where the show like Denmark is the best country to live in because people are generally really happy because their bureaucracy tax is really low. The quality of life is really high. Everyone is beautiful in Denmark. I mean, we all know the sorts of things. So I'm just curious... Having that as a metric on the government level makes it easier to set policy that says, oh, maybe we shouldn't build a giant landline here. Maybe we should actually invest in, say, daycare. It'll be a whole lot easier for the people that are involved and make them happier. I'm wondering if you had to spitball any idea for how to make it easier for people to live in open source, to have a better metric for sustainable code in the future and sustainable communities. What would you possibly do, especially because you're all about rolling up your sleeves and getting to work?
1: Again, one of the many, many projects that I kind of started... Then turned off because I thought it was a bad idea. It was a good few years ago I started a project that was analysed open source projects to try to measure their health. But I had the consumer mindset on. It was like so many people. I was worried about the supply chain. That every time I added a project, I was actually adding two or three hundred. So I wanted to build something that allowed me to do a very quick assessment. I actually was going to call it the open source report card and make it a bit like a school report. And Now, more recently, having used OpenAI and GPT-3, I really think I could build something cool. However, I think it would have a detrimental effect because I don't think you would be measuring the right thing. Because The right thing, to your point, is much more subtle. I would really like there to be a way for open source maintainers to be able to safely raise a hand and say, hey, I'm struggling here and there isn't a way to do that. You can infer it a little bit, maybe through you know the number of open issues, but that doesn't really help. Typically, we only find out when it goes bang, when it reaches breaking point. So it's your point about happiness. Do you know anyone measuring that? Because I think you could turn it into a GitHub badge or something like that. Hey, I'm a happy open source maintainer. That probably wouldn't work. But something that is the finger on the pulse of all these open source projects that we depend upon would be really useful. Because from my perspective, rolling up our sleeves, that would give us a really good guide. We would be able to see the projects that are struggling and need some assistance. I think it would be great. I've not seen anything yet. I'll
2: write that idea down for later today. At the risk of kind of turning it into a workshop, I think Some of the things I've been thinking about maybe involving a degree of this is what we want to achieve with this project. And these are the resources that we have at the moment as a function of happiness, right? Like there are projects that are at a different stage where actually they're kind of post maturity and it's now, yes, like functionally this thing works. Environmentally, this thing needs to be updated in order for it to be able to work as the kind of environment around us moves versus projects that are like, yeah, we've kind of got a cool concept and we know we have something and we have some users. We now have this roadmap that we would love to be able to progress on, but we don't have the necessary resources. And I say resources, meaning like people and time in addition to other things like money and so on as well. And then that might be a way of trying to get, I guess, to remove the word happiness because it can be so subjective, but kind of focus it on what the project wants to achieve and the resources that it currently has. And that might be useful, but yeah, I feel like I'm maybe this this the workshop now.
1: <laughs> I do like that idea because it acknowledges that the needs of each project are quite different. I could imagine that some might say this is a relatively new project. It's taken off in a big way. What I really need is money so that I can do this as a proper ongoing concern. I can make this my job or other projects might say to your point, We're mature. What I'd really like is a a corporate backer to just help us for long-term maintenance to make sure it's secure for the next 10 years. Very different things. Finding that data, creating that data, that's a challenge. At the moment, in terms of open source projects expressing what they want, I haven't found much beyond good first issues and then
2: inferring it through reading a lot of issues. So I also wanted to pick up just the point on like badging and trying to kind of re- produce a report card. So that's something we thought about a little bit in the past as well. And I wondered whether there's a happy medium in which organisations could effectively say this is the kind of standard that we are looking for, and treat that as a way of signalling, you know, to projects that if you wanted your project to be used in environments like this then these are the kinds of things that organizations are kind of looking for rather than just saying as a blanket, like, oh, your project doesn't meet the standard or it does. Yeah. Like, There's definitely a mode to badging and, and that kind of thing that's like signaling a need or a kind of potential best practice. And there's, I think, a, a little zone in the middle there that's kind of like, yeah, you can have you know, projects that would be appropriate for working in certain types of organizations. And then probably right at the top, you would have those. Highly kind of regulated organizations where they might have like some higher kind of bars in terms of how the project is organized and, and the kind of evidence they see there. So yeah, I kind of feel like there's there's also a lot around that as well.
1: I think there would be tremendous value in that. I would find it valuable as a consumer. The main thing I worry about is just how risky it might be. Drawing comparison to security theater and the problem that we get with that, there was a really good blog post that I read where. It was an open source maintainer went to a, an open source conference. And as you can imagine, they had a whole load of exhibitors there who d- do a good thing. They pay quite a lot of money to pay for the venue and so on. That's absolutely fine. But the comment he made was, so some company pays this security firm $30,000 a year to feel safe about the thing that I'm building in my free time. If you put in in place, a an open source report card that may do a good job of summarising the the genuine health of the project, or it may not. It may misrepresent. You may get into a situation where there are a whole load of maintainers who are not terribly happy with the way that some automated AI-powered bot has decided this is a fair representation of their project. That's the thing I'd worry about. I do think it's such a challenge because I think on the flip side, one of the things I've seen time and time again is people Adopting open source projects in a somewhat carefree fashion. Even in large enterprises, typically they will do the mandatory checks. They will always be on top of the legal checks, the licensing checks, any patent related issues. They're always on top of that. But quite often they don't look at the actual health of the project. I've seen people picking something where there's only one maintainer, which is a risk if you're building a product on top of it or maybe it hasn't had a commit in the last three years. That There are signals there that perhaps that's not the best bet, even though your standard legal and compliance checks are okay. But further to that, one of the things that I tell people time and time again is your best insurance policy is not to pay some third-party firm to do all these scans and checks. Your best security policy is to get involved with that project. So if they genuinely found value from an open source project with a single maintainer. I wouldn't say, whoa, don't use it. That's a risk. If they disappear off, you're stuffed. What I would say is, okay, acknowledge that there are some sustainability challenges there and roll up your sleeves. Get involved.
0: Love that. That is awesome. I think that's a really good point to wrap the podcast because we are running up on time. So thank you so much. Everyone who's listening, please do get involved. Do join the conversation. Colin. You go give talks at places. You have thought a lot about this besides this podcast. Where can people follow you or Scott Logic online to hear more about what's going on? And you also have a podcast. So what's that? So the
1: best place to find me is Twitter. But like most of us, I'm all over the place. But Twitter is probably the best place to find me and Scott Logic as well. I do have a podcast. It's called Beyond the Hype. And the reason for this is... Most software consultancies ride the hype, promote and push the hype. So, blockchain, AI, if it's hyped up, most consultancies will say, Yeah, this is awesome. You should use it everywhere because that sells projects. We're not like that. We have a sort of more measured approach. We're more pragmatic than that. So, Beyond the Hype is about taking a sort of measured and pragmatic approach and talking about. Sometimes the big hype, things like blockchain, AI, but sometimes the little hype. Why is everyone using microservices? Everyone, that sort of thing. But behavior-driven development, is that fundamentally the best way to build and test software? So that's what our podcast is about. It's cutting through the hype and finding where the real value is.
0: Awesome. I just had an idea about founding a company called Open Source Software Security where once a day I'll write you an email saying it's all going to be okay for this, I'll charge $50,000 because it'll just make you feel better, right? Like, it'll make you feel better. Where that money goes, don't, let's not worry about it. But if anyone wants to be a customer, let me know and I'll set this company up.
1: Or one that creates a bot that opens a trillion pull requests every day telling you to upgrade all your dependencies because ah, the world's on fire. The world yeah, is on fire. I love, I love fire. that. Love that.
0: On Twitter, you can find Colin at Colin Everhart. That's E B E R H. A R D T. So, Colin, that's great. Don't leave yet. This is now the part of the show we get to do spotlight. Spotlight is where we highlight projects or people which really have like helped us out in our lives or we just think are awesome and need some light shed on them. So, Ben Nichols, traditionally I ask the other panelists first, what is your spotlight today? I'm doing something completely
2: uncool and pitching my own stuff. So if anyone uses Octobox, which is an open source management tool for GitHub notifications, we launched a little while ago some extensions that are for Chrome and Firefox that mean that you can page through your GitHub notifications in GitHub. So yeah, if you want to kind of wake up and start your day by running through each of the issues that you have a notification about, just go next. Yes, do this thing. Next, no, ignore that thing. Next, yes, let's do that thing. And then finish. And that's the start of your day with a nice little to-do list. Then that's for you. It's Octobox on GitHub forward slash extension for that code. And that includes links for Chrome and Firefox.
0: Awesome. I'll do something slightly different, which is to say that Octobox is not just you. So my person today is going to be Andrew Nesbitt. Andrew is a super awesome developer who has done a lot of great work with Ben in the past. He's one of the main people on Octobox. He's also one of the few people who contributed to my Patreon when I had a Patreon. And I'm still just so grateful for that. That like he trusted me with a tiny bit of money, which wasn't really that much, but meant a huge amount to me meant so much. I didn't know what to do and stressed out, and didn't email anyone on the Patreon for a while. But I'm just really grateful for Andrew and his continued work, just particularly on things like libraries.io. Also, just for him continuing to exist in the world. You can find him at T-Bass, Teabass, T E A B A S S on Twitter. That's my spotlight. Colin, what's yours?
1: Sure, I want to highlight something which is oh, it's a challenging subject. So relating to the war in Ukraine. And how that relates to open source, you might not think it does. There was a fantastic blog post just a couple of months ago on the weaponization of open source. So there are a number of open source maintainers who have tried to use their open source project with every good intention to do harm to Russia. And I can totally understand why people would want to do that. The blog post is fantastic. Everyone should read it. Because one of the most important take-home messages within that blog post is that the open source community is very much built on the notion of trust. And whilst those individuals might think they're doing a good thing, it does really shake the foundations of what makes open source fundamentally work and sustainable in the long term. So yeah, it's a fantastic read and really, really makes you think to consider, you know, The role of open source when there's a war going on, you wouldn't even imagine it. But that's, again, that is how far-reaching and important
0: open source actually is. Fascinating. Oh, I want to talk about so much more about that because I disagree with that post and I want to talk about it some more. Ah, But no, no, it's great. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been excellent to have you. I really enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed the thoughtfulness that you bring to the ecosystem at large. And I just am fascinated. Guests, oh, listeners, if you are fascinated too, please do join in the conversation. If you have any thoughts about this podcast, you can send them to us at podcast at You can put them on Twitter, just do at sustainoss and also at Colin Everhart so that he can join in the conversation too, if he wishes to. As well, if you want to talk more, we do post these podcasts on the Sustain Discourse. Yes, we have a forum where you can talk about cool stuff like software sustainability. That's discourse.sustainoss.org this is the really fast part of the podcast. Thank you for listening. And beyond that, Colin, thank you so much. One final time. Good luck with everything and take care. Cool. Thank you very much.